Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. It's early February 2024, and hey, guess what? It's raining. This week, though, the mizzle hasn't stopped me from sallying forth into the woods for a bit of a slosh through the mud. Not going to lie, though, I am completely wet through. So this is the same woodland I've come to a few times for Three Ravens. It's a little walk from our house, but it's fairly quiet and mad for wildflowers. In bluebell season, the ground here is carpeted, but we are way off that yet. In fact, at the moment, as we start to approach the end of our tour around England's 39 historic counties, it doesn't really feel like spring has sprung. There are hints, a few clutches of snowdrops here and there, but the trees are bare, their long fallen leaves rotting into stinking mulch, and the ground is absolutely waterlogged. It's a bit of a running joke that it rains a lot in England. It's also part of our national character to moan about the weather. But this year it has rained so much over winter that it's a record year for it. We have lots of means to counter this sort of thing. We build flood defences, use huge water pumps, dig drainage ditches. And yet, hundreds of years ago, when the rains came down and the air was thick with cold and mist, the sky was dark and floodwaters rose, threatening livelihoods, well, it's not surprising that people thought there were supernatural forces behind it all. Not surprising either that people tried to appease those forces, sometimes in ways that might make people today shiver in terror. And I'll tell you a secret. If you stand in the rain, deep in a wood, on your own, for any length of time, 
it starts to become increasingly easy to believe that you're being watched. To think that maybe, just maybe, there is something there, hidden behind a tree trunk or peering up from beneath a puddle's mirrored surface. With this thought in mind, gather close around the three ravens' campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens Podcast. There were three ravens sat on a tree Down a down, hey down a down They were as black as they might be With a down One of them said to his mate Where shall we our breakfast take With a down, dairy, 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 down, down Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Conlon. Greetings, friends. Episode 36. I mean, obviously, with all our bonus episodes and so on, we've actually released a lot more than 36, haven't we? 92, in fact, on the main podcast feed. Yep. And if you add in Patreon exclusives and episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club, it's something like 110, maybe, but 36 county episodes. And three more to go after this one. Mm. And then we'll start all over again. Second lap. Oh, yeah. And another cool thing. Last week, we also passed through 125,000 downloads. So whoever downloaded us for the 125,000th time, thank you. It's a major milestone. It's crazy. Anyway, <laughs> thank you so much to everyone in the Three Ravens community for supporting us on this journey and telling your friends, gronking away on social media and so on. And we should give special thanks to our new supporters on Patreon, Charlotte, Fiona, Alison, Becky, Faye and Laura. All hail Charlotte, King of Patreon. All hail Fiona, King of Patreon. All hail Alison, King of Patreon. All hail Becky, King of Patreon. All hail Faye, King of Patreon. All hail Laura, King of Patreon. Thank you so much to all six of you. We've said it before and we'll say it again. Your support means the world to us. And the more people we have supporting us on Patreon and listening in general, the more things we can do. Yes, yes. And in terms of Patreon exclusives, on Thursday we have our new Patreon exclusive episode for the month, which is all about the white stag in folklore. So we're talking Celtic mythology, Arthurian myth, bits of history and heraldry, and I'm telling a brand new story. So that should be fun. That's in addition, by the way, to our normal Thursday Dying Arts episode where I'm going to be talking about traditional basket and trug making. Oh yeah. And before that we've got another bonus episode coming out on Valentine's Day. Yeah that's right. We're releasing a Valentine's Day special on Wednesday on the main feed chatting about folk traditions, romance and some darker aspects to Valentine's Day actually. Again a new story from me coming there. So a four episode week. What are we doing? Well you're writing lots of stories and also (laughs) editing podcasts in in the middle of the night, as is your want. <laughs> Very true. Anyhow, if you're not already a member of the Patreon, please consider signing up for $3 a month or $6 a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcasts. You get all of our episodes ad free, Monday episodes two days early, monthly exclusive episodes, the Three Ravens newsletter on the first of every month, and episodes of the Three Ravens Film Club. Yes, and in terms of this month's Three Ravens Film Club film, we're encouraging everyone to watch 1984's The Company of 
wolves and email their thoughts about it through to us by Monday the 26th for inclusion in that episode. We rewatched it the other day and wow, what a great film. Ending is a mess, but the journey to get there is pretty darn excellent. So many wolves and ravens and rabbits and hedgehogs all blended with some juicy folk horror. The animal rating for the company of wolves is gonna be crazy. It really is. Anyway, thank you to everyone who has already posted responses to the film on social media. We heartily encourage everyone to keep doing so or to email us their thoughts to Three Ravens Podcast at gmail.com that's also the place to send your entries to our folkloric flash fiction competition we're looking for a thousand words of carefully crafted prose tell us a story take us on a journey describe (laughs) an uncanny encounter then email your entries through to us we'll read them all pick our favourites and give them special dramatic performances in an episode after the end of series three likewise send us your folky tidbits trivia and local legends as well as any feedback which we always want to hear to threeravenspodcast at gmail.com as ever we'll talk about some of the lovely correspondence we've received at the end of the episode but now it's time to get down to business all right so martin it's february the 12th do we have any obscure festivals ancient traditions or long dead saints to celebrate today we sure do because today is the little observed but long acknowledged third day of shrove tide shrove monday i'll be honest as an avid lover of pancakes i'm very familiar with shrove tuesday also (laughs) known as pancake day and yesterday was palm sunday when traditionally trees were burned to create the ash for ash wednesday which is also valentine's day this year but what's the deal with shrove monday well shrove tide used to be a multi-day festival where christians prepared to be shriven and being shriven means being purified in advance of the 40 days of lent leading into easter yes in Lent, people traditionally went without all sorts of lovely things. No wine, no dairy products like milk and cheese, no eggs, no sugar. It was a kind of extended fast in advance of Ostara or Easter. Indeed. So Shrovetide was basically about packing as much fun as possible into a few short days before everyone went without. It was a bit of a bacchanal, a bit of a glut of sweet things, fatty foods and fun and games. The whole shebang used to start on Shrove Saturday with the beginning of the Carnival. Carnival literally means the eating of meat. Same root word as carnivore. Then you'd have Palm Sunday, lots of sweets, hot cross buns were made. Then Shrove Monday, today, was a holiday, a market day, and a day for playing old football. Ah, yes, old football. Not like football today with its rectangular pitch and its rules. No, no, no. (laughs) Yes, so old football was, it seems, absolutely insane. The basic conceit was goals were set up at either end of your town or village. Then there was a heavy leather ball, sometimes filled with rocks, and you split into two teams, normally starting in the village square, and the objective was to get that ball through your opponent's goal, whatever it takes. It must have been incredibly dangerous, because people would factor in natural obstacles like hills and rivers, choke points like bridges and alleyways. You weren't allowed to use weapons. You could definitely tussle and clatter into people. Before the days of modern medicine, you would have been taking your very life into your hands. Absolutely. A crazy sport. Not played anymore. It's kind of split off into rugby, football and lots of other things. I guess MMA to a certain degree. (laughs) Although in days past... So from the medieval era through to the early modern period, everyone in the village was encouraged to take part in Shrove Monday football. There were other games on offer, though, if you didn't want to die, such as quoits, rope pulls and fives. Then, as the day wasn't violent enough into the afternoon, you moved into Dappy Door Night. This 
is another slightly crazy tradition where children and explicitly children went from door to door selling bits of meat yep. wrapped in bags or paper, yes. meaning it wasn't always meat they were selling. Yeah. It could actually be a prank and they were obviously extorting money from their neighbours. Yes, it's much like ideas we've spoken about before, such as wassailing and is kind of a progenitor of Halloween trick-or-treating, but it was particularly brutal and also known as Lent crocking. Why Lent crocking? Well, because these gangs of children came to your door demanding payment for their mysterious bundles of maybe meat and if you didn't pay them or didn't pay them enough or if they just didn't like you it was known that on dappy door night these gangs of kids would try to invade your home and smash your crockery hence the term lent crocking wow mystery meat and property damage yes. my goodness what a horrible tradition <laughs> yeah especially as let's be honest the next day the adults would no doubt set about getting their revenge and not just by putting nasty things in pancakes <laughs> Anyway, that's the basic idea with Shrove Monday. It was a day for purging all that energy and all those wilder urges in advance of Ash Wednesday and the start of Lent. And what better way could there be to celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus than punching that bloke from down the road, beating your friends at lawn games, eating loads of fat and sugar, than smashing your neighbours' plates and dishes to smithereens? Oh no, I can see the county criers eyeing up our kitchen cupboards. Oh. No, no, stop it, you lot. We like our cups and saucers whole. Some of those were presents. Get over here and ring us into Lincolnshire. The historic county of Lincolnshire is located in England's East Midlands. It's bordered by the North Sea to the east, Norfolk, Cambridgeshire, Northamptonshire and Rutland to the south, Leicestershire and Nottinghamshire to the west, and Yorkshire to the northwest and north. As ever, there's a map showing its precise location in England and expanded information about the things we're going to talk about today on the blog at Three Ravens Podcast. So I was counting as you were speaking there, and I think you said Lincolnshire is bordered by seven other counties and the sea. Yes. That's a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And that's partly because Lincolnshire is so big. In fact, its expansive borders make it England's second largest historic county after Yorkshire. Yorkshire is over 3.6 million acres. Lincolnshire, 1.6 million acres. And in third place, because I know you're going to ask, it's Devon also with 1.6 million acres, but Lincolnshire is bigger than Devon by just under 30,000 acres, so around 100 square kilometres. I actually had no idea it was that big. Mm. I don't know a great deal about Lincolnshire. I know there's a cathedral at Lincoln. I have had one flying visit to Lincolnshire. Yes, you did where a I show literally there. drove yeah. up, did a gig, drove home. Uh -huh. Didn't really see any sights, so can't really be counted. Yes, well, Lincoln Cathedral is an awesome place. And of course, you did mention at the end of last week's episode, Lincolnshire sausages are very famous. They are. Every English supermarket will sell you three types of sausages, one plain and boring one, then Cumberland sausages, my favourites, as discussed on our Cumberland episode back in series two, and the noble Lincolnshire sausage, which is also quite delicious. And to get it out the way early, what distinguishes the Lincolnshire sausage from every other kind of sausage in the world? One specific ingredient, and that is sage. Sometimes other herbs are folded into the mix, including parsley and thyme. But for the traditionalist, a Lincolnshire sausage is made with coarse and chunky chopped pork, so not ground, blended 
with sage. The butchers of Lincolnshire have applied to have the recipe given protected status like the Cumberland sausage and the Melton Mowbray pork pie, but so far they've been unsuccessful. Very interesting. Okay, well, where should we start? For example, was Lincolnshire always called Lincolnshire? It most certainly was not. Our earliest records of Lincolnshire actually see the county called Lindsay. That's what it's known as in the Doomsday Book, with the word Lindsay meaning, in Old English, Sea Islands. And this is because for the longest time, much of Lincolnshire was very boggy, with lots of little juts of land and islands standing proud of tons and tons of rivers, marshes and fens. Well, we know from our Cambridgeshire episode that fens and bogs were seen as sacred places for the early Celts. Mm -hmm. So that suggests Lincolnshire was a particularly magical place. It definitely was. The Kingdom of Lindsay, as it was known, was one of the very first places settled by the Anglo-Saxons. But it was a highly contested area, fought over by Mercia to the west and Northumbria to the north. And one of the most interesting things about Lincolnshire is the very high number of ancient Celtic place names that still survive to this day. That's pretty cool. So what kind of places are we talking about? Well, the Holy Isle of Lindisfarne gets its name from the kingdom of Lindsay, with holy peoples having fled the wars in Lindsay to found Lindisfarne. But Lincoln, the county town of Lincolnshire, comes from when the Romans occupied it. They conquered it, connected it to their road network, both on the Fossway from Exeter in Devon up to Bath, Sirencester, Leicester, and on to Lindsay, which they called London Colonia. They also connected it to Ermine Street, the Roman road to London. So between all that and its access to the sea and utility as a shipping location, it became a major port, one of the most important cities in all of Roman England. And its name, Linden Colonia, eventually got shortened to Lindcolm and then Lincoln. Wow, okay, so it was rich, connected, sacred. There's a lot going on here. Yep. And how far back does Lincoln date? So we know there were people living there BC at least 12,000 years ago. There was a mass grave found near Washingborough containing 150 skeletons and thousands of stone tools buried as grave goods. But because of all the water, much of which was kind of drained away by extended programmes of dike digging and drainage by Dutch labourers in the 16th and 17th centuries, a lot of wooden remains have been lost. That's not to say people don't keep finding cool stuff, though. That's exciting. And what kinds of things have they found? Well, tons of things. In the Iron Age, the region was inhabited by the Coriolalvi tribe, and they had a mint pressing gold and silver coins. We've subsequently found them all over England and Wales, and in 2016, at Barnetby Le Wold in Lincolnshire, an ancient copper Coriol Talvi statue was unearthed of a woman riding a bull holding a mirror. Nobody knows who or what she's meant to represent, but all of this does suggest quite a bit of wealth flowing in and out of Lincolnshire through the Iron Age and into the Roman occupation. So do we think it's wealth comes from it being so wet and watery? In essence, yes. We've talked a lot about water being sacred, so you can imagine Lincolnshire being this kind of waterlogged place, very close to the other world, extremely easy to trade with as well. Even now, there's tons of rivers crisscrossing the county, including the Witham, the Lim, the Race, the Ancombe, the Neen, the Brant, the Trent. 
on and on they go. This made it very appealing to the Vikings, who again invaded, set up shop, and continued minting coins. So the region continued to be contested right up through into the Norman invasion, and we have some extremely cool artifacts discovered from what people tend to call the Dark Ages. This is very exciting. What kind of things? Well, one very cool example is a solid gold Viking brooch shaped like Thor's hammer Mjolnir. This was found in Spilsby in 2013. It's on display at the British Museum, and that is from the 9th or 10th century. Outstanding. Earlier than that, we have the very famous Witham Shield. This was found in the River Witham in 1826, dating from the 4th century. It's generally agreed to be one of the finest surviving examples of Celtic art ever found. It's a tall shield made of bronze. It used to have more jewels inlaid into its design than it has today. But can you imagine facing down a king with a tall shield of polished bronze glinting in the sun? It would have seemed completely magical and genuinely scared. Oh, I mean, as a battle tactic, it would have seemed terrifying, wouldn't it? Mm -hmm. You just take one look and go, all right, lads, clearly these marsh people are wizards. Let's <laughs> just we turn around to find a nice spot for a cup of tea and a piece of cake, and then we'll go and invade somebody else. <laughs> yes, well, there's also one last one. A rather saucy Roman knife handle oh, well. that survives to Day. It's worth saying almost all of these items and many hundreds more are on display at the Lincoln Museum, which is an amazing place. If you can go, do go. But this knife handle, it shows two men on either side of the handle and then a lady in between those two men. And well, let's just say it looks like everyone involved is having a very nice time. <laughs> Well, I mean, Lincolnshire so far, I have to say, you sound like a tip-top county. You've got special sausages, saucy Roman artefacts, magic shields, Thor's hammer and solid gold. What's not to like? Well, indeed, and it doesn't stop there, Eleanor. Once the Normans invaded, they built Lincoln Castle. And this remains, to this day, one of the best preserved castles in all of England. The other main castle in the county is Tattersall Castle. That one is a moated medieval castle and incredibly beautiful. It's said to be the finest example of medieval brickwork in England and one of the three most important surviving brick castles of the mid 15th century. That one is run by the National Trust. I'm not sure I know of that many brick castles. Hurstman's own near us, one of those. It is, and the other is Kirby Muxlow in Leicestershire, which, if you remember, I said people should visit ASAP as it's deteriorating quite quickly. As for Lincolnshire, though, through the Normans, the county booms, making lots of money through wool and agricultural trade. In particular, you get two famous kinds of Lincoln cloth, Lincoln scarlet and Lincoln green, with Lincoln green being the specific kind of cloth worn by legendary English outlaw, Robin Hood. Oh, wow. Well, Lincoln has yet more claims to fame. It does. And you've got to wonder if Will Scarlet comes from the Lincoln Scarlet as well. Mm, Quite interesting. interesting. Now, to return to the cathedral, its oldest parts date from 1072. Much of it fell down in an earthquake in 1185, but it was improved and expanded due to all this wealth in the county. By 1311, it was the tallest building in the world taller than the pyramids of Giza. 
Although, alas, the spire collapsed in 1581 and was never rebuilt. Still, it's an amazing place, like Lincoln in general. It has tons of ancient features, carvings, art. It houses one of the four remaining copies of the Magna Carta, and it also has its own funky little nugget of folklore. Go on. OK, well, it's said that in the 13th century, the devil sent a series of imps to cause chaos all across England's northern counties. This they did, by all measures, with Lincoln's economy declining during this period. And one day, two of these imps invaded Lincoln Cathedral and started making merry. They overturned pews, lit fires, threw nasty impy businesses all over the nave. So the bishop prayed for help and an angel appeared trapping the imps in stone. And you can see them there, petrified by the might of God in Lincoln Cathedral to this day. Outstanding. I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to dig too deeply into what the impy businesses thrown over the nave were. But I think I've, I've remembered, actually, like Winchester Cathedral, Lincoln also has a surviving Tournai font, it I think. It does, a black marble Tournai font. 12th century carvings all over it, including of Adam and Eve elsewhere in the cathedral, eating the forbidden fruit, loads of gargoyles and grotesques, there's flying buttresses holding it up at the sides. It's a mega cool cathedral. But a moment ago you mentioned a decline in Lincoln's economy, possibly caused by imps. Yeah, I think probably caused by imps, but you know, there, historians have written some other reasons. Um, so <laughs> Lincoln was very much mixed up in the Barons Wars, basically. That's, that right. had a big negative impact on its economy. Plus it expelled its Jewish community. It was one of the major five Jewish communities of the medieval era in England. The county was then badly impacted by the dissolution of the monasteries. Crowland Abbey is a stunning example of a ruined Benedictine monastery dating from the 8th century. Definitely worth a visit. Plus there's Thornton Abbey, Topham Abbey, Haveron Priory, Bourne Abbey, Reevesby Abbey, loads and loads and loads of them, all stripped of wealth by our old foe. Henry VIII. Now, as if all that wasn't bad enough, the real death blow came for the county by the hands of your chum, Oliver Cromwell. Lincolnshire was literally in the middle between royalist and parliamentarian factions. It was a full-on war zone, meaning most of the county's old buildings were reduced to rubble during this extended period of conflict. Look, now, I can obviously admit the parliamentarians were partly to blame, yeah. but it really does take two to tango. Oh, you can't say it was all Parliament's fault. <laughs> no, but Eleanor, who started oh, it? Oh, come on. <laughs> Eleanor, come on. Who started it? We did, Martin. We started it and our cause was righteous, damn your eyes. <laughs> OK. Anyway, after the Civil War, the county ended up in the doldrums with no major industries left. Thankfully, that all turned around in the Industrial Revolution when the county once again boomed. Heavy industry moved in, including railways, canals, factories and tons of businesses. It continued to be essential to England's survival during the wars, particularly World War II, in which Lincoln was badly bombed. But Lincoln continues to be one of the few places in England where garments are still manufactured and there's still heavy industry there. And it's also a little buzzing hotspot for the IT and services sector. And aside from Lincoln, are there any other major towns or cities in Lincolnshire? Oh, most definitely. And some famous ones. Grimsby and Scunthorpe are pretty major. Plus you've got Boston, Gainsborough, Mablethorpe, Grantham, Stamford, Sleaford. Going into this, I knew basically nothing about Lincolnshire. And I've got to say, having done my research, I'm psyched about this county. It's such an interesting 
beautiful place. I've got to say, um, I went to Mablethorpe, yes. and I'm not sure it can be described as a major town. No, it's not a major town. It's pretty, <laughs> right? Oh, um, yeah. It's a very be- It's got the most amazing beach. Yeah. It's just this really long, sandy beach. This is the thing. It's they're kind stunning. of famous places, because each of them have got mm. something notable or kind of amazing about them. Something that I really noticed when driving through Lincolnshire to get to Mablethorpe was how flat the yes. land was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very kind of startling in a way. And it evidently has this very rich history. But if we do our thing and make our pivot towards folklore, is there as much rich mythology and arcane weirdness in Lincolnshire as there is evidence of antiquity? Well, you'd sure hope so, wouldn't you? And with the Lincolnshire Wolds, this huge expanse of Chalkland Hills, plus, like you say, these flat areas like the wetlands of the Lincolnshire Fens, the amazing coastline running down the Lincoln Cliff Escarpment and the Lincolnshire Marshes, there's tons of wild Wild places there too. One of the most fascinating things I learned about it though is that Lincolnshire has no record of any ancient fairy stories at all. What, none at all? Nope. Unlike almost any other English county, there is no significant old legend or story about fairies in Lincolnshire. The closest thing to it comes from Sturton by Stowe, where there's a beautiful Saxon church, and it's said that when the decision was made to build Lincoln Cathedral, stone was carried by spirit horses from Stowe to Lincoln, and that the devil regularly tried to scare them, so they dropped their stones along the way on several occasions, making what most people would recognise as a kind of fairy stone. But that's as close as you get to fairies in Lincolnshire. Although the county did have a famous woodwose. Wait, an actual recorded woodwose? Yep. This legend comes from around Stainfield. And at the Church of St Andrews in Stainfield, there's loads of carvings of this woodwose. The legend says that he terrorised the local area at some point in the 9th century. A knight, Hercules de Tewitt, set about catching and battling this wild man, who was said to be giant in stature, dressed in leaves and bearing an enormous club made of an upturned tree. It said the fight was long and hard, but that Hercules eventually stabbed the woodwows through the heart and that it bled so much and for so long that the ground for miles around was stained red and for that reason the village Turwit built there was called Stainfield. I love that idea. What a brilliant story. Stainfield. Yeah, bloodstained Stainfield. What's even cooler is that a bit like the Conyers Falchion, as mentioned in our Durham episode back in series one, for centuries, Hercules de Turret's helmet, sword and gloves were all kept in the church on display, but they were stolen in 1995. What? people do these things mm. stealing from churches i mean really and stealing ancient artifacts as well i mean it's not like you're going to be able to make a ton of money for them on ebay for goodness sake well indeed honestly look if anyone knows who stole the sword that killed the woodwose of stainfield <laughs> please could you put it back so we can go and see it yes indeed now animals wise there's a famous shortcut in the fields across the angles of a bend in the river between burringham and Althorpe, and for centuries this spot was called the common piece and the common piece was haunted by a large white cat as big as a pig and it said that this pig-sized spirit cat (laughs) 
always crossed the road to get away from people, then went through a gap in the river's banks, swam across the river until the common piece was empty, and then it would swim back over. That's so strange. Yep. A sort of large, nervous ghost cat. Yes. I mean, who's to question what it's doing? And it's definitely not going to tell you. No, you definitely not. And uh, Lincolnshire, of course, has its own black dog as well, imaginatively called the black dog of Lincolnshire. Oh, original. <laughs> now, rather than a demon dog, this one is said to be benevolent, though as big as a calf. It's black with huge glowing lamp-like eyes. It's also said to appear to solitary walkers at night all over the county, and that though people might be scared of its appearance, it actually likes to walk alongside them, lighting their way before disappearing. There are tons of recorded sightings, some as late as in the 1930s, and compared to many of the black dogs and shucks we've encountered, the black dog of Lincolnshire seems to maybe be the best recorded of the lot. I mean, that is clearly most wonderful news, because we <laughs> love a spectral hound on three ravens, yes. but interesting that it's both super friendly and seen so often. Mm. Lincolnshire, where your wonders never cease. Well, certainly not for a while yet, as on the darker side of things, there's a famous abandoned Grade 1 listed church near Louth, St Bottles. Named after the Suffolk saint who expelled the marsh demons of Icon. Indeed, series one, episode 13. <laughs> but anyway, St Botolf at Skidbrook is more generally known by another name, the Demon Church. What? The Demon Church? Yep. The building dates from the 13th century, and since it was abandoned, it has been a consistent hotspot for supernatural investigators. It was thought for a long time to have been used for black magic rituals, and there's known to be a range of different phenomena to appear there, from orbs and shadowy figures to sounds of thunder, even in clear weather. So if you want to get freaked out, take your EVP equipment onto the Demon Church and scare yourself silly. No, thank you. I mean, I, I don't like to uh, believe in ghosts too hard. You know, I, I don't want them to get any ideas. And as we've already full on encountered one rather smelly ghost this year at Rye Castle, mm. as recorded in our Patreon exclusive Rye Ghost Tour special, I need not encounter any more for a while. <laughs> that way I can once again reassure myself that they are not really real, <laughs> even though I know in my heart that they actually probably Oh. Outstanding, Eleanor. Take that logic. I is what I is. <laughs> so another pretty creepy one. At the Isle of Axum, an ancient place once utterly surrounded by marshes, there used to be a nearby village called Root. That's spelt W-R-O-O-T. Only it said that in the days of King Oswald of Northumbria, so in the 7th century, all the men on the Isle of Root were hit by a terrible curse, which was visited on them in the form of a thunderstorm. And after a bolt of lightning struck the village, all the men transformed into flies. What? I yeah. mean, <laughs> do we know what they'd done to deserve this curse? And were the women fine? Yeah, I think the women I were fine. somebody should interview the women. <laughs> what do they know? It must have been a pretty bad thing these men did, though, to bring on a full-on smiting. And not just to death. It's not like they were just smited to death. They were cursed to flies. That is bad, isn't it? It's terrible. Anyway, for centuries afterwards, when swarms of flies formed in the marshes around the Isle of Axholm, which often happened before or after thunderstorms, apparently, they were called by the local islanders the Little Men of Root. That is creepy, isn't yep. it? The idea that all these ancient people are flies, still breeding and carrying on buzzing about. That is a super dark fate. It's a good one, isn't it? And really unusual. 
Another pretty strange one comes from Lindholm, where a hermit, William of Lindholm, was said to have built a chapel out in the wilderness with an altar at one end and a hearth at the other, and carved them out of stone. They, in fact, carved this entire chapel out of stone and built it. He's said to have lived there in holy isolation until one day he said he knew it was his time to die. The Bishop of Lincoln came to visit him, which is how we have these records, and the Bishop tells us William had prepared a special stone slab, which he propped up above the grave he dug for himself in front of his hearth. He didn't, did he? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it sounds like William of Lindham is about to cap his own grave with this giant slab. Yep, he did exactly that. When he felt he was close to death, he climbed into the grave he dug himself, then tugged on a rope to make the slab fall on top of him, engaging in one of the only acts of self-burial we know about in England. And even wilder, in 1727, when William's ancient chapel was collapsing in on itself because of wind and rain and weathering and so on, the site was excavated by Samuel Wesley, the Reverend of Epworth, who found the human remains of William of Lindholm under this massive slab with an oval piece of beaten copper on his chest and a peck of hemp seed, with hemp seed in folklore being used in divination to help you see your heart's desire. Well, I really hope William of Lindham did see his heart's desire, because to <laughs> me it sounds like he basically killed himself with a massive chunk of rock, but there you go. Yes. Now, <laughs> we've got some very cool bits of lore associated with the River Trent as well. The first is that it has its own genius loci, so local god, also known as Old Forky or (laughs) Old Muddy Face. These legends come to us from at least as early as the 15th century, and it's said that Old Muddy Face appeared in particularly violent waves in the River Trent, threatening to drown people. To make him happy, it was said people should throw bread into the river, but never spit on their fishing nets, as that would annoy him, and never spill salt into the river, as he was said to hate it. So do watch out for Old Forky or Old Muddy Face, everyone. Well, yeah, especially if you're going for a riverside picnic. Last thing you need is an ancient river god coming and sweeping you under the water. Very true. There are actually quite a few sweep-you-under-the-water type beasties in Lincolnshire, as I'm sure you can imagine. Three of them I'll be mentioning in my story this week. But before I go, brace yourself, Eleanor, because Lincolnshire also has its own Selkie legend. You're joking. This is so rare. An English Selkie. Yep. Her name was Jenny Hearn. She was known to appear both as a beautiful woman and as a seal, or sometimes as a woman with a seal's face or a seal with a woman's face. This was obviously where the River Trent flows out into the sea. And it's said that Jenny Hearn was very, very small and that she kept a boat between Wildsworth and Oston Ferry and that sometimes she was seen paddling about in it, causing chaos for local sailors and fishermen. They also used to say that sometimes they'd hear her knocking on the bottom side of their boats and they knew they were in trouble if that happened rather than a thing of beauty though she was very much a selkie to be feared well jenny hearn what an excellently strange creature and for more on selkies of course do listen to our three ravens bestiary episode from last month which is all about them now though it's story time my tale this week is called the tiddyman of ancombe vale and i'll start spinning my yarn right after this (laughs) 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In the town of Glanford Brig, where the mud is green and stinks of the sea, men have crossed the River Ankham for long as there were souls in England. It's said the first boats made there was stitched, Oak tree boards darned together with needle and thread. For oaks, it's a holy tree. When one grows a catkin beard like a wise old king, its flesh is supple enough to be sewn, boards tacked with goat willow thread, yet strong enough to keep out the wet. Not to mention the darker things that dwell below the waves, if they ever come knocking on the hull. For the longest time at Glanford, and those droves around it, Kettleby as was, Scorby Brooks, Rawby and Russell, all were at the mercy of the waters. Floods came in upon doorsills and marshes breathing in at winter, belly swolled like a maid with child. Then out they flowed come midsummer day, revealing earth richer than Croesus. Until the Dutchman came, through all those dark months the bogs spilled over. The stink of the fens rolled in on the wind, and the cold salt kisses of the water-wives were wet on the lips of all at Glanford and for miles about. So, to get around, most went by on boats. Oak boats and elder, seeing kin and making trades, staying inland. Oh, away from the ruins of Thornton Abbey, where the restless shade of Thomas de Grentham, 14th abbot and wizard as he was, speaks silent word of his lost black arts to this day, though dead many a hundred year. Such folk as dwelt at Ankham Vale were in times past known as car folk, and to please the waters, they kept to strange ways. For in the fens come winter, where mists rose up by night, thick enough to clutch your tongue, and lapwings peeped, the mud was yare enough to stand and reach to grasp a man and pull him under. Many knew it, saw pale and creepy fingers in the mire, which were called dead hands, for that is what they were. To keep safe, all gave to the boggarts who held the fen waters at their command. Gifts to the dead hands of chicken eggs and fish, and bone things to the water wives, and to their husbands, those that some called green coaties and some called yarthkins, all manner of delights. 
Though the car folk called them strangers, to most beyond Ankham Vale, those men of the marsh were known as Tiddymen. This is for they grew no taller than a three-year child, no higher than your knee. Though all had beards and great big hands and feet, and ugly heads rolling about on their shoulders, they walked limpity lobbledy, mayhaps as they was lame, looking like deary wee grandfathers with long white hair and whiskers all cutted together and tangled. Most times the folk of Glanford kept well in with the Tiddymen, for if left alone those strangers harmed no one, and if people were good to them they never forgot it and helped them back. Come summer it was said they wore grass-green jackets and breeches and yellow bonnets like toadstools atop their queer little faces with long noses and wide mouths, their tongues hanging out and flapping about. They were mischievous and playful, folk said, and in the harvest fields they pulled the corn ears about and tumbled in the stubble. They wrestled with poppy heads, tweaked the flower buds and chased butterflies, tugging worms out of the earth in jest. In spring they fell to shaking and pinching the tree buds to make them come open, and if happy, they helped the corn to ripen. The crickets played for them with a right good will, and they painted the pretty colours of the flowers and made the reds and browns of the fruit come autumn. It was well known if you'd only stand quite still out of doors, and you'd see the tiddy things running and playing all around you. They were never heard to speak, but if made angry, they grinned and yelped like angry dogs. But when gay, they'd come crudlesome and twitter and cheap as soft as birds, laughing like piewits, making the sound of ooey, ooey, ooey. Though that were only in the bright months when they gave. In the cold times, they take and they take and take and take away, for that was when their bills came due. When the cold rains fell and Ankham River ran quick out on towards the sea and the fens grew fat and black and wet, by night the strangers danced on the glebe underneath the moon. Gowned in grey for winter time, they could scarce be seen through the thick mists that came out from their water holes with the sound of running water and a soft of wind. And there were large flat stones found here and there in the valley where the waters never touched. The stranger stones, they were called. By days, people smeared those stones with blood and lit fires on them for the Tiddymun to dance about, for if they didn't, they were hell to pay. People did all they could to keep in with them. Laid on those stones the first flowers of the garden, first orchard fruit, first ears of harvest corn, a bit of bread and salt, a drop of milk or beer. And the givers went home quick once they had laid down their gifts, paddles racing through the gloom, for none would want to see the tiddy folk eating at their victuals. And when the deepest dark came on, people walked about with lights in their hands and smeared the sills of windows and doors with blood to keep the horrors off. At Ewell, priests would call such actions sin, 
and heathen, but the car folk did their part, made cakes of grain to roast beside the hearth, then left them on the stranger stones, bobbing out upon their boats to keep the tiddyman sweet. When they were happy, you knew it, for they'd screech out like piewits, Ooey, ooey, ooey. But when angered, oh, you knew that too. Things withered. Harvests failed, folk went missing or hungry, and the waters rose and rose right up to doors, sometimes pouring in. The mists turned green, and from out them came the tiddymun to take what should have been gave. Folk that did give had naught to fear, but those who shirked, who kept food back in hordes, the strangers knew and took their share with their tiny little hands. One year, just such a thing occurred to Balfour, preacher of Kettlebeer, back in the reign of Charles I. A proud man, Balfour thought to go without was good, so deprived himself and his daughter Kay to a larch thin from when she were a girl. Balfour saw this as sacrifice, but the tiddyman thought him a miser. More's a shame, for a good sort was Kate, pretty and fond of Gilbert Tewitt, son of Sir Ralph, Lord of the Manor there. In the summer, young Gilbert came from Glanford upon his pony, and Kate would walk with him amongst the fields and orchards full of life. Balfour, who were priest, was in no place to offer up her hand to folk such as him, but still she'd come home with flowers in her hair and a glow on her rose-apple cheeks. Some said the money didn't matter, that Kate would wed Gilbert and become a fine lady, even though she were car folk. In those sunny times, the tiddymun must have seen her out a-walking and taken a liking to Kate, greater than Gilbert to wit. Back then, see, the duchies came. Sir Ralph had monies from the crown to drain the fens and make all Ancombe Vale good farming land. So the Dutchmen dug out dikes and drained the fens, and the Greencoaties, well, they hated that. They spat and raved and wanted more and more from people laid upon their stones. And though Dutchmen disappeared, pulled beneath the mire, more were sent, and the work carried on, with Balfour blessing the duchies at their work. More though, Balfour, well, he never gave. He thought the strangers outside God, not knowing the Bible and born of Cain. So, one winter, with the waters up, the bog spilled into Balfour's home. And the strangers came and snatched young Kate, taking her away beneath the mud. Once Kate were took, Balfour aged right quick. His hair turned white and eyes pale blue, out staring like he saw a ghost. And Gilbert, course, without his Kate to walk with and canoodle by the fire, he came no more to Kettleby from Glanford on his pony, and the girl was never spoke of, save for when folk whispered she was taken by the hearthkins and eaten in the mist. In winter, no work was done by the duchies. They kept to their camps and spoke their foreign tongue, 
And if we speak the truth, the car folk all despised them. Like oil and water, the fen folk and the Dutch stayed well apart. And through the dark months, when the Tiddymun went hungry, all who knew their ways feared spring, while the Dutchies gave not a fig. Years passed in this way, and things got worse and worse. Cattle died, no crops would grow, and the green mists came, claiming old and young. But the king's gold were good. So the networks of dikes were dug summer after summer. Though little did folk know that Kate, though took, were far from dead. Instead, she were beneath the earth, down deep below the still green water within the stranger's caves. To them, you see, Kate Balfour was much as like a jewel, bright and shimmering, her white skin was as moonbeams, and she were a treasure to them. Not wicked and tantrumy like their water wives, she was a giant to them too. Tiddy as they were, they clambered up all on her, round her legs and in her hair, tying it in elf locks full of curses far too dangerous to lift. They knew not their strength, and hurt her with their graspings, their twistings and their pokes, but... Her voice was pleasing to them, so she would sing them lullabies and make them calm. And she washed their tiddy clothes ready for spring and cooked the things the car folk left upon the rocks, lighting little fires in their caves and living with the yarskins down below. Within the dark and wet, away Kate's clothes did rot. She was never seen by men so felt no shame, dressed up in muck and slime such as it clung upon her. Moss grew on throughout her hair, and tree roots curled about her here and there. In summer she wished to go and walk beneath the sun to see Gilbert and her father too before he died. Yet the Tiddyman kept her hid, so her eyes came all but blind in the dark. And where the tiddy hands and fingers touched her and moved her this way or that as pleased them, she lost her ways to care. And she never laughed, even when the strangers did, cheeping and twittering, ooey, ooey, ooey. As time went by, of course, Sir Ralph saw to it that Gilbert wed, marrying a maid from Ghoul, and the Dutchies dug and dug, so the land grew dry and hard. But the Dutchmen watched amazed as the car folk went about the fields and offered water to the four corners, singing to the Yarthkins, Tiddymun without a name, they sang. Here's water for thee, take the spell undone. But it was of no matter. The Tiddymun were bold as brass. Children withered and died, and food was scarce. Seeking help from God, the people stoned the wall-eyed witch from Gorby out of the marketplace and docked Sally of Wadham in a pond until she nearly died. They said our father backwards and spat to the east to keep the Todd Lowry pranks off, but it was of no use. This was as, you see, the strangers would no longer give to him, but only take... Their water wives had drained away, and their dead hands turned to bitter sod from which no life would spring. Beside this, the Tiddyman's powers were for naught good, or so it seemed. 
until one day a Dutchy captain named Egbert Bass did a cunning, cunning thing. See, through all the years Egbert saw to Balfour's wants. The priest came, ragged and half-starved, and blessed the men at work. So the duchies fed him meat and potatoes and fine, fine things, hot and rich and holy in their way. And the priest prayed on over the Dutchman's work, so Egbert learned the old man's language, enough at least to understand the sadness in his heart. So he wished to help him, and when winter came once more, shivery-like, with skirls of bitter wind and water, Egbert waited out one night, hidden by a stranger's stone, a long, dark musket on his back, a fire burning beside a pile of gist. Before long, out came a tiddyman, gowned in grey. He was, the Dutchman saw, no bigger than a child of three, just like old Balfour said. He'd come up darkling with the mist, creeping, limpity lobbledy, his long white beard and hair glinting in the fire's light. And Egbert watched as he gathered up the sausage meats and hams, dancing a leaping jig, laughing like a piewit, ooey, ooey, ooey. Though right amazed, Egbert did not take his musket up and shoot the stranger dead. Rather, he watched it moving off back down into a waterhole. And then he blew a whistle, called his men, and that's where his team of duchies did start to dig. It took them time, of course, for the Yathkin caves ran deep, but on and on they worked through sun up and across the day, until, all of a sudden, there broke out the awfulest wailing and whimpering all about them. It was a sound like a lot of crying babies, sobbing as if their hearts would break. Like lost children, the tiddymen reached up with their little hands, cheeping with their cold lips, for the duchies had broken through into their deepest grotto. And there they saw, covered in the tiddy beasts, a thing most of the Dutchmen thought was their mother. A strange fiend they spied, not so unlike a pretty maid, clad in naught but mud and moss and roots. And as the winter sun fell upon her, she wept for the brightness caused her pain, and she shrank from it in terror. Though the duchies sought to shoot her dead, Egbert Bass bade them not. Rather, he took out his sabre, shaking it and prodding till the tiddyman left off. Then up he scooped the Yathkin mother, who was no more than Kate Balfour, and he dressed her in his jacket and carried her to Kettleby, to the house wherein her father lived. The commotion all about was great, for the Dutchman lit fires then, burning down into the waterholes and blasting out the Yathkins with black powder. The stranger stones, too, they broke down, striking them with hammer and pick till nought was left but gravel. Wild as this day was, wilder still were the faces of the people who saw Kate Balfour, as she was that day, come back from the dead or so it seemed tangled up in mud and roots, brought home by Egbert to Balfour's cottage. Alas for Kate, as when her father saw her, his pale heart gave out. Old as he was, he fell flat upon his back and died, so she never did see him alive again. 
But Egbert watched as she made her way about the place where she had grown, crawling on hands and knees. She touched over her father's form, then held and sniffed at all the items in the place, creeping into the corners of the cottage and weeping, for she'd returned, ever changed, to a half-forgotten land. For days, Egbert Bass stayed with her, sat near or just outside the door, and Kate washed herself clean in hot water he fetched her, but none of her old clothes fit in spite of her father having kept them in a heavy trunk, so Egbert sent his men to Lincoln and brought her back linen and lace, thread and wool, and the folk of Kettleby gathered around in clumps, waiting and waiting until she reappeared. As she did, dressed in a new gown of her own making. Her sight was never good again, but she told the car folk of her time beneath the ground, living with the Tiddyman. And Egbert listened too, in spite of all the fen dwellers making it clear they sought him gone. Few gave her tale much credence, but word reached Gilbert to wit, and he rode by from Kettleby Hall, bearing witness to Kate Balfour as she was then, years older and stranger than ever she had been. It said Gilbert wept on seeing her, for she was so beautiful, but not for him. As for Kate, whose heart was broken long ago, the sight of Gilbert was of no great import. He was a fatter man than the boy she loved as a girl, emboldened with bad teeth. Far more handsome was Egbert Bass, and when Gilbert rode away it was the Dutchman who stayed behind, keeping at distance asking her what more there was that he could do to please her. With her father buried, and the people of Glanford Brig, Kettleby, Scorby Brooks, and all about observing her with suspicion, like some strange being not of the earth, Kate thought at last of what she sought from Egbert Bass. This was, in time, to be his wife and to travel with him far away to Holland, where life might begin for the pair of them anew. Egbert had loved on first sight the fame maiden hatched from out the Fenland ground. So he of course agreed, and come spring, with the dikes finished, the pair set sail, never to be heard of in Lincolnshire again. As for Ancombe Vale... Once the siege of Hull was won, the Turwit line ended and Kettleby Hall was torn down. Time ran by just like the river there. The earth grew lush and fruitful, the people less inclined to go about in boats. Still, for many years, on each new moon, the carfolk still went out to the nearest dike edge and teemed water in the foss, saying, Didymon without a name. Here's water for thee. Who knows if this old prayer was answered. The land there is good to this day, so who's to know? But on a misty night, it's still said you'll hear the Tiddyman's cries, and sometimes see a fire for him burning in the dark. Whether they dance about them as they once did, though, well, you'll have to ask a braver soul than I. Wow, 
Martin, I've never come across Tiddyman. Are they a specifically Lincolnshire phenomenon? As far as I can tell, yes, and quite widely and deeply reported. So and really quite unusual, <laughs> yeah. actually. I mean, they've got some things in common with other kind of fairy folk, but not a lot. Yeah, the kind of gnomey goblin like type creature. Goblin, yeah, type creature, but, but very interesting. Living in water holes beneath the marsh. That's super weird. And yes, creepy. it is quite creepy, and one feels their intentions may not be correct (laughs) (laughs) and poor Kate being abducted by them and basically becoming a sort of titty person herself yeah so in the story I I combined lots of other smaller folk tales and incidents into one but I have to say Kate Balfour was an entire creation of mine there's no evidence of her (laughs) but is it true that the Dutch attempted to drain the fans completely oh yeah yeah that was their job that's what they were employed to do so the crown under Charles I were employed to turn the whole thing into arable land to make it farmable and so yeah they set about a systematic process of clearing the area there were these stranger stones there they were painted with blood food was left for the tiddyman all of these rites different times a year and uh, yeah they they blew them all up and destroyed them oh boy yeah tiddyman were not very happy about that and i bet actually the local people were not super happy about that no they apparently hated the dutchmen mm, who were there so really there, there was a real kind of like racism and discrimination and a resentment about the old ways being forcibly removed yeah. yeah although you think you know more arable land would mean more money flowing into the area yeah but just unused fence what's curious is that in the interim it seemed there was loads and loads of disease which people considered to be omens ah <laughs> so it definitely the titty men was really really controversial basically oh super interesting it's got this sort of political bent to it as well as a very fantastical yeah historical politics (laughs) yes with an otherworldly fen barrow yeah although i can't imagine anyone would much fancy being dragged under the water by creepy old men goblins and then sort of forced to do whatever they want you to no it sounds extremely unfun (laughs) yeah that was what i was going for thank goodness the brave dutchman (laughs) came along at the end and saved her oh fantastic so then eleanor should we talk correspondence yes please okie dokes well no new reviews this week so please dear listener if you haven't already done so do hop onto itunes or apple podcasts and write us one we will read it out and likewise wherever you listen please give us a thumbs up or drop some stars it really does help other people to find us on spot we did have a comment on last week's Wiltshire episode from Liz, who wrote, Really interesting episode. I've lived in Wiltshire for nearly 20 years and haven't heard of several of those tales, only the Moonraker story. Great story from Eleanor too. Oh, that's nice. Thanks, Liz. Lots of nice things have come through about that episode and your story, in fact, including messages and comments from Rachel, Libby, Helen and Charles. We also, off the back of the episode, had tons of wonderful responses to our social media posts about poor old St Agatha. Oh no, poor St Agatha. everyone who helped that one go a little bit viral. <laughs> of particular note was the message from Gary, who wrote about Wiltshire. Just finished the Wiltshire episode. Amazing, by the way. Thanks, Gary. He continues, I was in Salisbury for two days last week and anyone thinking of going must visit the Haunch of Venison pub. Mm. Apart from being haunted, it has a severed mummified hand of an 18th century card cheat on display inside a bread oven, of all things. Well worth checking out. Yep, a severed mummified hand. There are pictures. It's awesome. Thanks so much, Gary. We also had some lovely emails from Ian, Amanda and Jane. Amanda very passionately making the point that the Isle of Wight is not in Hampshire. Despite the fact that, sorry Amanda, historically, the Isle of Wight 
was part of Hampshire. Might not be today, but it was. Yes, split off in 1890. So barely yesterday, but through Raven standards. <laughs> so uh, we were focusing on the historic yes, county, indeed. hence why we Sorry, did include Amanda. the Isle of Wight. But I'm sure you're right. And it probably deserves its own episode at some point, well, doesn't I, I it? I think the Isle of a Wight. lot of the islands around England have such fascinating folklore. Yeah, we're going to have to figure it out one way or another. But we also had some lovely correspondence about last week's bestiary bonus episode about Bigfoot. Yeah. Yes, so we heard from Tony first off, who wrote about his slightly tricky time as part of the UK Bigfoot Society, who, alas, weren't quite as open to scepticism on some of their claims as Tony may have been. He was swiftly sent packing back into the wilderness to commune with the other wild men. <laughs> <laughs> we also heard from Rob, who contributed a tantalising nugget to the whole Patterson-Gimlin film debate, which was the big kickoff moment for the US Bigfoot craze in the 1960s. And Rob quite rightly wrote to say that the Bigfoot costume used in the Patterson-Gimlin film was actually a test piece made by John Chambers, the award-winning costume designer and makeup artist famed for such things as designing Spock's ears for the original Star Trek and his work on the Munsters. I love the Munsters. <laughs> I have the whole thing on DVD. You do love the Munsters. But John Chambers died in 2001. But he said that he had made that suit as a test piece for the original Plant of the Apes movie, for which he did the costume design and won an Academy Award. Basically, so the story goes, Patterson didn't tell Gimlin the incident was a hoax, which added to the sensationalism of the event. But it was a kind of open secret in Hollywood special effects circles that this guy had made the costume, lent it to this bloke as a prank. Well, that's excellent. Thanks, Rob, for passing that on. And if you, dear listener, have extra details on the things we've covered on Three Ravens or just want to share thoughts and tidbits of folklore from your area, mm. do email them through just like your entries to the Folklore Flash Fiction Competition, <laughs> to 3ravenspodcast at gmail.com. In terms of our likers, commenters and super sharers this week, special thank yous go to Eric, I am Nellie Kelly, Peter, Lily and Les on Facebook, Lissa, Tracy, Heidi, Ceruleanesque, Hedgebound England and Medieval Scribe on Instagram, and Paco, Titania, Alwyn Mayer, Jonathan Calder, Save Redland Library and Mystic Moon on Twitter. To join the fun on social media, please join the Three Ravens Facebook group. Lovely original artwork and exciting things shared by Sam, Vivian, Sabrina and others. Mm -hmm. And our Facebook page is at facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast. Our Instagram is at Three Ravens Podcast. And you can also find us on Twitter or X at Three Ravens Pod. And we're also running at Folky Friday every Friday on Twitter now. So if you're interested in sharing cool, folky art and info, which... Let's be honest, you listen to the Three Ravens, you clearly are. Tag posts, hashtag Folky Friday. We have new themes each week, so come along and get involved. Otherwise, we'll be back on Wednesday with our Valentine's Day special, mm. and then on Thursday with a double whammy, our dying arts episode about basket and trug making, and our Patreon-exclusive episode about the white stag in myth and legend. Then next Monday, Eleanor, a where, a will, a we, be a wandering. Uh, a we will be a wandering to staff. Staffordshire, oh, okay. the county of Wedgwood, China, the Cheese Riot of 1783, and the Evil Mermaid of Moridge. Are you trying to get away with doing another mermaid story? Absolutely not. Good, because it's my turn to mermaid. Mine. <laughs> Until then, though, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. 
thanks and credit go to E.H. Rudkin's The Folklore of Lincolnshire, Susanna O'Neill's The Folklore of Lincolnshire, and Stephen Wade's A to Z of Curious Lincolnshire, Strange Stories of Mysteries, Crimes, and Eccentrics, all of which were very useful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaux. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman, such hounds, such hawks, and such leemen, with a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.